Are you a mother? What did you learn from your mother? And how has recovery changed your way of being a mother or your relationship with your own mother? Welcome to episode 154 of The Recovery Show, and happy Mother's Day. A little late, but happy Mother's Day. This episode is brought to you by Eric, Kayla, and Alan. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Eric, Kayla, and Alan, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During the show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I'm your host today. Joining me is Carrie. Welcome to the show. Thank you. And Carrie, you picked a reading to uh, introduce our Mother's Day topic. I did. Yes, thank you. And it's from the book, Discovering Choices, um, starting on page 84. My damaged relationship with my mother brought me to Al-Anon. Although we both had to cope with the disease of alcoholism in loved ones, over the years, a wall of hurt feelings built up between us. I perceived her frustration with my stalled marriage as a condemnment of me, and I reacted defensively. The more I tried to stand my ground, the more sensitive I became to her criticisms, and the less aware I became of her love. In Al-Anon, I discovered that I had a part in the breakdown of communication with my mother. It was freeing to realize there were some things I could change. I started by being open to the idea that my mother hadn't turned against me, and I prayed for God to help me reestablish a loving relationship with my mom. God was bringing about spiritual changes in her life, too, that allowed us to share our faith in a deeper way than we had before. Still, I felt rejected whenever my mother offered any suggestion about my relationship with my husband. After all, I thought, I didn't need her to tell me that my marriage was unmanageable, my house was a mess, and my workload was overwhelming. What I really needed, it turned out, was the courage to face my difficulties, turn them over to my higher power's care, and wait for his guidance. I told my husband about my needs and he agreed to seek counseling with me. My reactions to my mom have changed from defensiveness to honesty and openness. Both relationships are improving, thanks to the principles I've learned in Al-Anon. Best of all, I hope that I am growing closer to God, and closer to accepting and loving myself as I take responsibility for my part. I am grateful. Thanks for finding that, and... I love that that reading sort of covers, in a way, the whole uh, spectrum from beginning to end of the recovery process, from the the damaged relationship, uh, the alcoholism in the family, to how uh, the writer was affected, and then into recovery and rebuilding, 
reconnecting and, and maybe finding new ways to be in relationship with their mother. Uh, and why don't we start, if you can reflect on you know, your relationship with your mother when uh, you were growing up and, and as you came into adulthood. In thinking about um, a question, you know, what was my mother like? She was really cool. She was a hippie and always had friends over and always laughing, a big contagious laugh. And everyone always complimented on how our house was super eclectic and everyone always felt really comfortable there. Um, she's a voracious reader, totally self-educated. She loves the 50s, diners and old radio shows and astrology and psychic readings and all that. And she was has a really nice way of viewing the world, even death. And I always felt better after talking to her about that stuff. And she owned her own home and sent me to private school. I don't know how she did that. While I do know, she worked uh, really, really hard. Um, she had two jobs. And I remember being in the car with her when we would kind of come to a red light. And she would say, um, tell me when the light turns green. So she could just close her eyes for those few seconds. Hmm. And on Friday nights, she would drop me off at um, a bowling alley where my grandmother was in a bowling league. And I'd spend the night and spend all day with my grandmother so my mom could work that second job. And my mom would get uh, angry sometimes. Um, she would yell if the vacuum broke or at me for various things. And I remember one time a family friend told me, um, she said, your mom loves you very much. And I remember being really surprised by that. Like, you know, what? Like, what in the world gives you that impression? Hmm. I remember thinking a lot about that after and realizing that even though she was really affectionate towards me and... I just didn't feel like she loved me. And then when I was nine years old, she was in a really bad car accident, and um, she was in the hospital for two weeks. I didn't realize until more recently, about two summers ago, that that's when things really started to change. After her accident, she would get really angry, and she would yelled before, but it just it was different. It was more often, and it was worse, and... It started not to make as much sense, and her house was less tidy. And then my relationship with her, growing up, we spent a lot of time together, and people would comment on how close we seemed and how well we got along. And and we did what felt like maybe half the time. Um, the other half, she was, as I said, angry um, about one thing or another. And sometimes it it felt... I guess confusing is the word because she would go from yelling across the house, you know, I love you and hugging me in the morning and sitting together on the couch, holding hands wherever we walked to screaming so badly that her face would get really red and so much so that I was worried. I remember being worried for her and I spent a lot of time and energy trying to tread lightly and make myself small, I guess, to not disturb her. And then another memory that I have is uh, it's probably about 20 years ago, and before I had seemed to that seemed to work, like kind of tiptoeing and appealing to her, you know, sense of humor. But then something shifted, and it wasn't working anymore. And this one night, I remember being in my room. I remember the feelings and like the the, the lamp that was on, and I just I realized. 
um, something that I had heard about alcoholics, that sometimes we have to let them hit their bottoms or go down with them. And this really felt true for my mom. Mm. And I realized I had to stop trying because it wasn't doing anyone any good. So how old were you then? Uh, I was in my early 20s. Okay, okay. Yeah. And and then recently I've also realized that since that night, I don't really feel like I've had a mom. Mm. I became really close with her mom, my grandmother, and around that time. And we talked on the phone all the time and I went to see her as much as I could. It was really hard when she passed away. And then I became close with my aunt, who's my mom's younger sister. And then she died (laughs) two years ago. And Mm. that hit me much harder than I expected. And it wasn't until recently that I realized that it hit me that hard because she had been doing all the things that I hear moms do, Mm. like calling often, asking how I was and how the kids were and sending them birthday and Christmas cards. So your mother is still alive then? She is. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I thought I heard that, but <laughs> yeah. I wanted to clarify before I took my, stuck my foot totally in it. Yeah, no. yeah, she lives a couple hundred miles away. All right. Well, why don't, why don't I take my turn at this question? Yeah. Uh, so I, I was trying to think back. What do I remember of my mother growing up? And what I remember of my mother growing up is somebody who, you know, had time for us as children who would make cookies with us, um, that sort of thing. And she was, as was, uh, I think, typical in the, the 50s, late 50s and early 60s when I was young. She was staying at home. She was not working. Uh, my father was the breadwinner. He went off to work at, I don't know, 7.30 in the morning and came home at 5.30 and dinner was on the table at 6. And you know, it was that, that sort of uh, really traditional suburban family looking thing. And, uh, you know, there was no no alcoholism in my house growing up. Um, I know there was some in the extended family. I didn't learn about that until much later. And so I can't really say how much that affected me as a child, but that I do know, and again, this is something that I have seen in retrospect uh, after having been in in Al-Anon and understanding what these things are, that my mother was exhibits a lot of traits of codependency, and, and I can't help but wonder if she or maybe her mother is an adult child of an alcoholic. Uh, I think I've said this before, I know my grandfather drank, but I never saw him drink a lot. And and by the time I knew him, he was retired. So, you know, for him to be sitting around with a beer or something, it just seemed normal. So I don't know. Uh, but I, I do know there is alcoholism on that side of the family. And I certainly um, learned to be codependent from my mother. I learned, uh, you know, she was one of these people that everybody else had to have their thing first. You know, we all had to have our food and then she could have her food. We all had to be mm. be satisfied with, or, you know, if there was something somebody wanted, then she was going to get up and get it. She was uh, never, never going to be happy until we were all happy. And again, that's not something that I saw when I was in it, right? It's only something that I can see now. I know that there were times when we would say, oh, no, don't bother, don't bother. And she's, no, I have to, I have to. So I learned that. I learned taking care of people. I learned that 
that, that my happiness depended on other people's happiness. But I would say she was a very loving mother and, uh, um, you know, made a, made a good home for us. You know, I, I wrote this question, what was your relationship with, with your mother like? And I'm like, well, I was her kid. She was my mother. And, and it's hard for me to mm. like take it any further apart. There was a familial love going on there that, but, I don't remember feeling like a real special closeness. I also don't remember feeling um, a separation. I don't remember, you know, being angry with her about stuff. It's pretty amazing. You know, she sent me, she sent me cookies when I was in college, right? Because that's what mothers do. Um, and it's funny. I actually remember my grandmother, her mother more. Actually, I had two. I have two grandmothers. Obviously, well, not obviously, but most people have two. Um, actually, I had a grandmother and a step grandmother because my father's mother died when he was six. So, as far as I knew, until um, somewhat later in life, she was my grandmother. And I had one grandmother who was just this really loving, active, engaged person who was always there, and you know, she would teach us to watercolor paint and talked about the times when she was director of a Girl Scout camp and had to kill a rattlesnake once. And I mean, these are stories that I remember from her. And, and, and she, my mother's parents would spent the summers with us from the time I was about five until really until um, I think my grandfather was near the end of his life and just really couldn't, couldn't do that anymore. And so I saw a lot of, I saw a lot of my mother's mother and, she was, I think, more openly loving, more openly. And maybe that's just grandmothers versus mothers thing. I don't know. Um, my father's mother, or as it happened, stepmother, was a very judgmental person. And I didn't get along with her at all. And I was really glad that we didn't see them very often. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, different mother experiences there. As I say, I learned, learned to be codependent. That, I think, brought me into relationship with or, or finding people that I could fix. I don't know. Mm -hmm. The other thing that she taught me was working for social justice. She was, I, I think both my parents were, but I think my mother, much more so than my father, was really active in the civil rights movement in the 60s. Mm -hmm. um, working with local organizations. I know she worked with the local NAACP. Um, she went to Washington once for, I, I don't think it was the big march on Washington, the one with Martin Luther King at the, at the Lincoln Memorial, but I know she went, she went on a bus with a bunch of people from, I think from our church, um, to Washington. And I was like, what's going on? I don't understand this. So I must have still been fairly young. So I, I think I also sort of learned that from her that, that, you know, we stand up for what we believe in. You know what? We've got one more voice I want to bring in today. Um, Akila left a voicemail uh, on this topic, and let's let's play that now. Hey, Spencer, it's Akila. Um, thinking about mothers, so one of the hardest parts of recovery for me has actually been recognizing and realizing that I was I'm very angry with my mother, and I have been very angry with her growing up. Um, so I, I grew up in an alcoholic home. My mother was not the drinker in the family, so it was 
I couldn't be angry at her. Um, it wasn't safe for me. And I do love my mother very much. However, one of the things I realized when um, my parents and I started sharing a place again is that my relationship with my mother tends to be very codependent. I think that it's my job to take care of her. I think that I'm responsible for her, that um, if she needs help, I'm supposed to bail her out. These messages were given to me along the way. My mother is a very self-sufficient person, but living with alcoholism, as you know, messes up some of the roles. So for me, it was really weird. I would get in this place where um, it was really hard for me. It is still hard for me when she has trouble to not want to jump in and try to fix it or save her. And I was just playing on my mother, always paid me back. So it wasn't like I was, there's this long list of her, you know, just taking money from me and never giving it back. But it was really, it was just very um, strange. So one of my friends that I talked to in programs said, you know, one of the things is that black and white, all or nothing. Like I didn't recognize it. I could be angry at my mother and still love her. Um, one thing that recovery does give me is a lot of compassion for her because I hear her story and other people. I did not have a partner or a spouse who was drinking. I don't have that experience. That's not my experience. And so it's really easy for me to only think of a child's perspective. So hearing people in programs talk about living with their spouses helps me understand my mother more, which is really important because I do love her very much. Um, I am a mother. Uh, I have a 17-year-old daughter. Before I came in the program, my idea of parenting, I was trying to do the exact opposite of what my parents did because um, in my house, I wasn't allowed to have feelings, and that's not true. In my house, I was my dad was always right. Um, it didn't matter what anybody else thought. If I thought he was wrong, I couldn't say anything. So I tried to raise my daughter very differently. However, I went so far the other way, and I didn't have appropriate boundaries and my daughter kind of ran all over me and there were a couple of things that helped with that um before i came into the program uh, there was this book um so my daughter sat limits with a strong little child help and then of course i got in a program and i figured out that what i was trying to do is i would do things for my daughter but i did it my mom I always had ulterior motives. I wanted her to appreciate me and to love me and to know the sacrifices and to be grateful, and which are all things that are appropriate, but that's that's why I did them. It wasn't, um, I'm doing this thing because I think it's a good thing for you. Though that was always part of it, it was like, and you will love me so much for it. Now I don't do that. Um, so our relationship is very different. I also used to yell at her a lot. I was very angry and short-tempered. Um, there, I have a couple of notes where she told me she was running away because she didn't want to live with me anymore. She doesn't remember a lot of it because I came to the program when she was she was about 11, maybe 12. And she'll say sometimes when I show it to her, oh, my gosh, that's awful. And she's like, I don't remember that. She does remember when I changed and she didn't like it because it was different, but she much, much more appreciates the person I am today. And I always tell her, um, you know, she has a... She lived with a parent, an adult child of an alcoholic. She lived with a parent who basically had suffers from the disease of alcoholism for some time. And it, it's good that she doesn't remember, but it's also a lot of ingrained stuff in our relationship that um, hasn't been healthy and isn't always healthy. So, like I said, I love my mother. I appreciate her. 
Um, I I have a lot of love in my heart for her. And it's been interesting and challenging in recovery because, again, the anger um, that I had that was so untreated and untapped for so long has created some barriers that she has noticed. But I try my best to um, treat her with loving kindness today. Happy Mother's Day to everyone out there. All right, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, thanks, Akila, for uh, for calling in on on pretty short notice. I sent her an email. I think it might have been yesterday. I said, "Hey, I'm uh, doing a doing an episode on Mother's Day. Could you call in and, and share something?" And she did. And and thank you so much for that. I guess I want to talk a little later about how my relationship with my mother has changed over the years. Has changed both with age and with recovery. Um, but I'm going to give the Give the microphone back to you, Carrie, and ask you about how you are a mother. I mean, you are a mother, right? I am, yes. <laughs> and, and, and maybe a little bit about how that has changed as you came into recovery. Yeah, so I do. I have two children. I have a daughter who's 11 and a son who's 9. They're two years apart, almost to the day. So before I got into program, I was doing the best I could with the tools I had, which pretty much was to tend to their every need, putting myself dead last. A lactation consultant came to the house when my daughter was five days old and told me that I had to learn to put the oxygen mask on myself first. And even hearing that just made my skin crawl. Mm. <laughs> it felt <laughs> it felt like she was telling me to stop walking on my feet and for the rest of my life walk on my hands. It was just like, uh, that sounds really uncomfortable. <laughs> mm. And I remember realizing when my daughter was a baby that I did not even have boundaries with her. Yeah, I was just meeting every need she had. And so I was pretty exhausted. And just one example of many is that the in the first 14 months of her life, I slept four hours consecutively two times. So Wow. I did yeah, I I I did not sleep for over a year. And I joked then that um I remember like in my delirium I was like, I probably shouldn't be driving. Yeah, it was it was intense. And then I had another baby and then we moved halfway across the country for a simpler and slower life and finding schools, remodeling a house, I I hit one of my rock bottoms. I had um, what I believe was adrenal fatigue. The diagnosis of that is kind of weird, but when I researched it, it was pretty spot on. Um, and I just, I felt like I had the flu 24-7. And just my body ached. I just was so tired. I just, my, my nerves were just really shot. And then my back started to go out. It got progressively more painful with each time. Yeah, so I was pretty busy making my husband and my kids my higher power. <laughs> In retrospect, I think my body was trying to help get my attention. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so at some point then you you came into Eleanor. I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I know I remember you said a little bit about your story, but I don't know exactly where that fits into this mother yeah. saga. Yeah, <laughs> saga. I love it. Um, feels like that some days. 
Yeah, I um, went to my first meeting in December 2014, and then I went one more time in the spring. And then last summer, I realized that even though a friend had just recommended a really nice therapist, I, I enjoyed working with her, that I needed something more than once a week. And who can afford that, right? Mm. Um, <laughs> nice thing about Alanon. Right? Yeah, exactly. So over the summer, I decided as soon as my beautiful kids are back in school, I'm going to go back to that Al-Anon place <laughs> regularly. And I was going to, I was ready to dive in and find a sponsor and work the steps. And yeah, I loved that it was way more affordable. I mean, I, you know, I make a donation every time, but it, it is much, much better, easier on the pocket. I also liked that I didn't have to make an appointment um, because, you know, sometimes they're sick or I'm feeling like it's not, you know, just my life isn't allowing it. And I liked that the 12 steps provided, uh, it sounded to me at that time that they provided guidance and structure and that I could do them at my own pace because as a mom, my time is not my own. Yeah. So I went and I've been going to, to, I've been going to two to four meetings per week since August. And I'm working with a sponsor and doing the steps pretty slowly. And I call her when I feel confused in my Alanonisms, and all those little, like doable ways that I work my program are helping me to put my focus back on myself and my higher power. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the time that I've been going to Alanon, I'm starting to see the changes that everyone promised that really scared me hearing promises, but. I I just can't, yeah, I can't deny it. I started going back to yoga, which is something that I really have always loved and feels like radical self-care. I then enrolled in yoga therapy teacher training, and that's a really big one for me. It's something I wanted to do since I took my first class 26 years ago, and I still, you know, I still can't believe I'm doing it. And I kept hearing in meetings that other people talking about what they want, and my sponsor kept, over the times that we would talk to each other, she kept asking me what I want. <laughs> and those things just kind of surfaced. Um, and if, if, if I can interject a moment, yeah. I, I've got to say that for me, as, mm. as a codependent person, mm. that question, what do you want, yeah. is one of the hardest questions for me to ever answer, no matter whether mm-hmm. it's what kind of ice cream do I want or what mm. do I want to do with my life. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. When I hear that question, I just, you know, I get this little whoop thing going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, yeah, it's like my brain just totally scrambles, you know, and I just like my system shuts down. It's just like, Arr. and that would happen, you know, every time she would ask that. And, and then again, like, you know, listening in meetings and hearing people talk about it, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. They're, they're listening to what they want. <laughs> like, how do they know what that is? And, and then this, as I said, this yoga thing just like surfaced. Yeah. And so those ways, um, my parenting has, my mothering has changed and I'm taking care of myself more, my health. I got a checkup last month, which is kind of a big deal for me because I hadn't been in a couple years. Um, I'm eating regularly. It's also, I guess, just sad to say that, um, I had started skipping meals, which I had really never done my whole life, but, Mm. I'm really prioritizing that. 
yeah, and all these things just had a really huge impact on me and therefore mothering my kids. And I started to notice that I was laughing more, making more jokes with them at dinner time, and losing my patience with them less often. You know, I still have my moments, but uh, my nine-year-old son actually told me, uh, I think it was about two weeks ago, it was out of the blue. <laughs> he said, yeah, and I quote, ever since you started going to Al-Anon, you yell less. And I was just like, oh my God. On the so mouths of babes, as they right? say. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Ah. Yeah, I mean, it's nice to hear, but it's also like, oh my gosh. He's, he's seeing it. Yeah, and you know, I, I do, as I said, I still lose my patience. But now, you know, it's so different for me because I'm not like sitting in my guilt by myself, just, you know, trying to not beat myself up about it. I have tools like listening to great Al-Anon podcasts, <laughs> um, reading literature, calling my sponsor, texting my Al-Anon friends for support and going to meetings. So yeah, I'm starting to see the effects. <laughs> Which is so cool, isn't it? Yeah. And it, you know, it kind of, you know, it, it was really, it really was scary. And I, I mentioned it to my sponsor, but, and at some point I think I said like, can you stop saying that? Like, like nice things and promises and, you know, you won't recognize yourself in a year. And I was like, it just made, it just scared me. Um, but I just kept taking those little itty bitty steps and it's true. It's been really, really true for me. Yeah. What your, your son said about you not mm-hmm. being angry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, that was one of the first things that I noticed in myself mm. when, when I started working the program, um, was that, that, that anger I had built up over the years and really rage. It didn't go away, but it definitely got a lot less, um, there were a lot fewer explosions. And of course, you know, children have a way of doing things that are not what you want them to do. Not usually on purpose, sometimes on purpose. And and that would bring out that anger and it, I would just explode. And I'm saying this so calmly, but it definitely was not calmly when it happened. And mm-hmm. so that that was really the first, one of the first things that I noticed as a positive effect of coming to Al-Anon, I was like, wow, I'm not angry all the time anymore. I'm not blowing up yeah. at my kids all the time. How did that happen? <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, so I'm thinking about how did my understanding of and how did my relationship with my mother change in recovery? And I remember, I remember one time was visiting them and this was before before I found Al-Anon and and she asked me a question about my wife's drinking and I just kind of just shut it down Mm -hmm. Um, I was not ready to talk about it and of course she didn't say anything more and the alcoholism in my family had cut off my lines of communication with a lot of people, including my family. And my parents live now, or I live now about 400 miles away from where, where they live, which is pretty much where they've lived all the time I've been alive. I mean, they've moved from the house I grew up into a retirement 
house that they built um, about 60 miles away, but it's still about the same distance from where I live now. So I only see them once or twice a year when we make the trip. And so we don't have the opportunity to, to spend a lot of time just being together talking about stuff on a regular basis. So anyway, she asked me and it, and it just shut her down. And then sort of when everything hit the fan and uh, my wife went on to, went to a residential treatment program and, and I was in Al-Anon all of a sudden, like the communication lines were wide open and I probably overshared, but you know how that goes. <laughs> but the other thing that happened was that, that as I started to learn about how I had been affected by, not just by the alcoholism, but how, you know, sort of the way I had lived my life, the way that I had learned to live my life had um, maybe, mm, let's say, predisposed me to marrying an alcoholic. We'll just say something like that. I started to identify these traits in myself that I was changing, that I wanted to change. And I started to see them in her. I know there's some readings, and, and I'm not going to try to find them right now, about how the things that, that we dislike the most in other people are very often things we dislike in ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that started to happen, that I became really like hypersensitized to this thing about trying to make a decision and, and her not expressing her own desire until she knew what everybody else wanted and that sort of, and, and I've, I've talked about this, this incident um, a few times before, but I was visiting, we were out in California visiting my brother, um, both my parents and I were out there and we had, he was um, undergoing kidney dialysis at the time. So we had dropped him off at at the dialysis center for his, I don't know, whatever it was like six or eight hours that he had to be there. And we were going to go find some dinner. So she says, well, where do you want to have dinner? Because that's who she is. And, and it's, you know, it's a normal question, right? In a normal family, you say, Hey, what do you want to do for dinner? Mm-hmm. And I expressed that, Hey, here we were in Southern California and I hadn't had any Mexican food yet. That is not her food of choice. But she went into this whole sort of monologue about, well, I don't really know anything, any Mexican restaurants, but I'm sure we could find one. But how would we know if it was good? And and I realized what I had done. <laughs> you know, I had set off this 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 codependent thing. And it was so obvious to me. It was so obvious to me. And I didn't know what to do. And I just sort of let it run down. And 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 we and I said, let's, you know, let's go to this Japanese restaurant that you guys like, because I knew they liked it and I would like it too. And I said, I'll just, I'll find some Mexican food another time when, you know, you don't have to worry about it, but it just, it just like, ah, um, mm-hmm. so that was sort of mid recovery where these behaviors that I didn't like in myself, I saw them in her. And they would sort of, they would trigger a sort of an anger reaction, really. Um, not, well, sometimes, sometimes I would react out of it. And then as I went further along, I was able to find more acceptance to understanding that, well, she's been this way for what, 70 years and, or more. <laughs> and, I can't expect her to change. And this is who she is. And, you know, 
that thing that I learned to do with the alcoholism, this is who, this is what is, this is what is, and I can live with it or I can choose to, to make a change, but I'm not going to change that. I can change me, but I can't change that. I can change me, but I can't change her. Um, and I want to be there. So I've come to an acceptance uh, and understanding that this is who she is. And when I get frustrated about it, I can either say, okay, this is what's going on. Or again, I, I've talked about her failing health and, and, you know, it's difficult for her to do things, but we go there um, and we have a meal and she wants to get up and she wants to wash the dishes and she wants to put stuff away. She wants to set the table before people come to the table. She wants to set out glasses with ice in them. And, and, and she moves at a, almost literally a snail's pace these days. And I have to find a balance and the program has given me tools to find a balance between just wanting to do it all so that I don't have to watch her shuffling along, trying to, you know, put ice in everybody's glasses, but also trying to give her the dignity of being the person she wants to be. And one of the things that she wants to be is of service. Mm -hmm. And, and so I can't take all of that away from her and learning how to say, you know what, it's my turn to do the dishes rather than just getting frustrated and whatever. I don't, you know, I don't even remember what I used to do, okay? It's just like, <laughs> and starting to see, and I think the reading that you did at the beginning sort of touched on this, that I'm moving from the role of the child being taken care of, which I haven't been for a long time, obviously, but I think sometimes she still sees me that way. I'm moving into the role of the parent now taking care of, of my, my parents in their old age, taking care of my mother as her ability to just be in life um, is less. And that's also scary. And I actually have a reading picked out uh, uh, for the, for the closing after we're done here that I might read, um, that that talks about grieving loss and and I'm sort of pre grieving pre grieving the loss of my mother because I know it's coming and and again trying not to let that affect the relationship that I have when I'm with her um, and it's difficult it's difficult when we'll be talking about something and you know she can't remember what we said two minutes ago um, that's really scary. And uh, learning ways to be, to be there without letting that fear shut it off. And, and that it came to a head a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago now, when uh, it became apparent that, that you know, she, was, she was getting worse. And I sort of arranged things so that we didn't visit that summer. It was the, I guess it was the year my one kid graduated college. And so we had seen each other at the graduation. And so we didn't do our regular middle of the summer trip. And, Mm -hmm. and at the end of summer, I was taking this kid to, to uh, grad school. And on the way back, 
I could go about 50 miles out of my way and stop and see my parents. And mm-hmm. I had to convince myself to do that. And I'm glad I did. Mm-hmm. Um, because that was really, that was really the first time we went out to dinner at a restaurant and, um, that I was able to look at, at her with compassion as she, you know, maneuvered her walker slowly through the tables to, to the place we were going to have dinner and, and so on and so forth. And just to let go of the fear and to be there. Um, and that's, that's where my relationship with my mother is now. You know, every now and then the, the old person, my old mother peeks out uh, and, and want to spend time seeing how much I can bring that out. Um, I'll be seeing, be seeing them very briefly in a couple of weeks uh, because I'm going back to where they live for a memorial service for a friend of mine. Uh, so how I relate to my mother now is it's, it's complicated. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's that, that Facebook thing. How is it? It's complicated because I love her. And, but, but seeing her being with her triggers a lot of fear in me. Um, and, and learning to set that aside. And it's, it's similar to the relationship that I had with my wife while she was still drinking. And, and, but I, when I was in recovery was, you know, I loved her, but it, it sometimes was really hard to be with her. Mm-hmm. How about you? What is your relationship with your mother like now? <sighs> Unfortunately, it still feels difficult with my mom. And then I have to remind myself, okay, I'm, you know, just kind of like a baby in Aladdin, you know, mm-hmm. recovery lifetime. Uh, you know, and, and a real sign that I'm getting stronger in my program is that I'm planning to go with my kids to see her and my grandpa who lives with her, um, he's 95, this summer. And I have not had the desire to go in a couple years. It just felt too overwhelming, I guess is the word. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, I was going to um, book the flights two days ago, but I got an angry email from my mom because she was saying that we weren't going to be there long enough for her liking. Um, so I called my sponsor, um, and I have some journaling and praying to do to get clear on what I want to do and what's best for me and the kids rather than, and and to, she was really encouraging me to make sure I wasn't kind of doing anything out of, um, obligation. Yeah. And you mentioned compassion. I, I feel like I've always had compassion for my mom. When I was younger, she shared some details about her childhood. Her, her mom and dad, they weren't super affectionate, but they, my grandmother was really a great grandmother. I think it was just, that was just easier for her, which my mom shared with me was um, healing for her to see that. And I feel like, you know, my compassion for her is growing as I'm in the program. I was actually in a Al-Anon meeting when I realized that I think that she's an untreated Al-Anon and because I, I think I've only seen her drink about five times in my life. And, mm-hmm. and for that reason, I kind of felt like I was sneaking into Al-Anon <laughs> the first few months. And then in a meeting, I kept hearing people um, describing their alcoholic parents and how oddly similar it sounded to my childhood. And then someone said it, that their parents didn't drink, but their grandparents did. And then I had a huge light bulb <laughs> moment, you know, remembering all the things my mom had shared with me um, and that, you know, just all the family stories. I mean, they drank big time every Friday night. I mean, parties, 
um, just to celebrate the end of the week. And that had a huge effect on all three of their children. Yeah, some more compassion there for sure. So I found this reading in, in Hope for Today, which is one of our daily readers. This is from from June 7th. And, uh, you know, it doesn't apply exactly to, I think, to either of us, but there's some stuff that, that does speak to me in here. So I'm going to read this and then maybe comment briefly. I rarely cried while I was growing up in my alcoholic family. I was sure it was a sign of weakness. However, my emotions came as a package. When I turned off one feeling, I shut off all the others. When my mother died, I had been in Al-Anon a little less than one year. She was my primary reason for joining the program. She was also my best friend. My grief was, and sometimes still is, unbearable. If it weren't for the program, my sponsor, and the support of fellow Al-Anon members, I wouldn't be able to grieve at all. Thanks to the program, I now realize that grieving is not a sign of frailty. In fact, it's the opposite. Sobbing, wailing, lamenting, all different ways of discharging my pain so that I can heal. Allow me to experience the strength of my aliveness. They give me the freedom to miss an amazing woman and to carry her memory with me always. And as I said earlier, I'm, you know, I'm sort of pre-grieving in, in a real way. I'm grieving at the, you know, the loss of the alive person that she was. She's a different person now. And, you know, she's still a person that enjoys things. She's still a person that um, I can enjoy spending time with, but she's not, she's not the person she was when I was five. She's not the person she was when I was 25. And she's not the person she was when I was 50. Mm-hmm. As those changes come, grief comes with them. And being in Al-Anon, having a place to having a language of feelings. Like I don't, didn't really have a language of feelings before, you know, I had anger and love and happy. Um, (laughs) You know, uh, I don't think I really had feelings before and I certainly didn't talk about them, you know, having that language and has given me a recognition when, when I'm in grief, whether it's over a, a person or, some part of my life, uh, you know, I realized, and this is a minor one, but I realized this winter I'm probably never going to ski again. I, I don't mm-hmm. think my body is up for it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a huge part of my life, but it was definitely something that I enjoyed doing and and thinking, well, I'm just not going to do it. And and some acceptance, but also a little bit of, ah, really? You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. ah, you know, well, I'm not going to have my mother with me for a whole lot longer. Um, or if I do, she's going to continue to be a different person from the person that that I think of as my mother. And so mm-hmm. the permission that the program has given me to express that and to feel it is, is important for me. Mm-hmm. So that's why I picked that reading. After a short break, we will continue with our lives in recovery, where we talk about how recovery works in our daily lives and in our meetings. And Carrie, you picked some music for us. Yeah, I did. Um, Yeah, our first musical selection, which you can find on the website at therecoveryshow.com slash 154, is um, from the cast of the show Empire. Uh, featuring Juicy Smollett with Good Enough is the name of the song, Good Enough. Um, And when I heard this song, um, it really spoke to me. There's a part of me that has always wanted my mom to see me as good enough. 
just a couple lines here from the song. It feels like I've walked 5,000 miles and didn't even come close. And I have felt like that for sure. Um, like I've tried so hard for so long, for so many years, and it's just not good enough. You know, after a lot of self-work over the past 16 years, which is basically on and off therapy and workshops and stuff, I've come to realize that the main message I got from her that I'm working to heal is that it's, it's so hard to say that word. I hate that word, but, um, that I'm stupid. I can never do enough and that I'm unlovable. And the big one, I learned to make her my higher power. Um, everything centered around her, my, her mood, her anger. And then I did this with my husband and now even my kids. So it seems like significant in my story, like maybe the title. <laughs> In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery, what's happening in our meetings and in our lives in the past week or so. Well, to be quite honest, um, I had a pretty hard week. I'm not sure if your higher power does this, but mine really has a great sense of humor sometimes. <laughs> um, so as I have shared on voicemails before, I found your podcast just by chance. I'm not even like a podcast person. Um, I listened to one other one um, ever since coming to Al-Anon because it's uh, humor. And I was, you know, realizing that I really need to bring laughter into my life, but I guess I just searched for it. So I'm listening my way up from episode one. And then early last week, I heard an episode you did on Father's Day and Mother's Day was coming up and I had the fabulous idea, haha, to do an episode on Mother's Day. And then here's where my higher power sense of humor comes in, that my Mother's Day myself personally just kind of stunk. I did something that was a huge stretch for me and asked for what I wanted, even though it was via text <laughs> to my husband uh, a few days before Mother's Day, asking him um, just for some quiet time and not to feed anyone that day. <laughs> and a few years back, they had, <laughs> yeah, they had um, planted um, some morning glory flowers for me and that that would be nice. And well, those things didn't quite happen. And so after waking up mother's day and cleaning the house for a few hours, um, I got a text from my sponsor asking me what I was doing. And it was like, uh Oh, um, so I told her the truth that I was cleaning. And then I did do some things myself for that day, just basically just watching a bunch of Downton Abbey <laughs> Yeah, so I was kind of in a funk, and then I got that email from my mom, I think I mentioned it earlier, that, that she wasn't happy about my travel plans, and my preteen daughter was um, giving me business this week, and so this funk I'd gotten myself into, I realized, how in the world am I going to do this podcast with Spencer? And it was, you know, it's my first one, and so I just kind of felt like to my higher power, like, thanks a lot, you know, like... Just what, it's like everything was coming at me, it felt like. Um, and so whenever I'm in doubt, I get myself into a meeting. And um, so often when I do, not only is the topic or the theme of the meeting spot on, but also everyone shares. And so the meeting I went to on Tuesday, um, the topic was nice, but it was the shares that really uh, got to me. And it seemed like every single person was mentioning at some point in their share that in one way or another, they had 
lost connection with their higher power and ways that they wanted to reconnect with it. And again, I was like, really? Cause that's a big one for me. That's, um, yeah, it's a big one. So I'm, I'm hearing that and letting it in. And sometimes I think beyond self-care and self-acceptance, uh, connecting with my higher power is the whole reason I'm in Al-Anon. So yeah, it was a bumpy week. And also at the same time, thanks to Al-Anon and my sponsor and this podcast, um, I'm receiving a really beautiful message that I'm doing okay and that my higher power is here with me, next to me, for whenever I'm ready to stop my shenanigans and listen. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. So I was thinking back over my week and uh, Saturday, my Saturday morning meeting, which is a step meeting, on the first Saturday of the month, we have one table, which we do this table meeting thing in Michigan, which I gather is not the norm in all parts of the country. And one table on the first Saturday of the month uh, has been, and I've, I've talked about this before, has been working our way through the Al-Anon uh, four-step inventory workbook, the one called A Blueprint for Progress. I was not there at the beginning. Um, I think one of the people who was said they started in 2007 because once a month we get to talk about one or two questions out of that book and this is a 90-page book. It's got a lot of questions. There's space to write, so it's not as bad as it sounds when you say 90 pages, but there's a lot of questions, and everybody who wants to addresses the question, and then we go on to the next question. And we're now in the section on character traits, which has a like a lot of sort of dichotomous character traits, and the, and the one that, that came up on, on Saturday was impatience versus patience. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and and you know not surprisingly probably people had a lot to say about it Um, and it wasn't so much the topic that struck me but the I just had this sudden feeling of amazement that you know here we are strangers sitting around a table I think that it was a small meeting on Saturday. I think there might have been six or eight of us. And and we're just opening up about ourselves to each other. And sure, some of us have known each other for a long time. And, and some of us, maybe that was the first time they'd been there. And that this is such an amazing thing that we do in our meetings. And I almost felt like, you know, it would be really cool to have a meeting that just focused on step four on the inventory and sort of did this like all the time. And, and then I thought, but I don't have the energy to actually make that happen. And so I'll just let it be a dream for a while. I do. I have talked to somebody on this show who actually started a four step meeting uh, in his area. So I think that's where the idea came from. But it's just like, wow, this is amazing. I would like to do this like every week. And the contrast in my head emotionally from where I was when I came into Elanon 14 years ago, yeah, where that inventory step was this big, scary monster that I did not want to face. And to come to this place where this is such an amazing, cool thing that we do here, sharing our honest assessment of ourselves, our, our, our faults, and our, and our assets. Uh, that's a change. 
And that is an amazing change. Uh, Sunday night also, not surprisingly, was a small meeting. Um, there were some mothers there, and there were some people who have mothers there, but it was much smaller than usual. And so uh, the table that I was sitting at, we we read from one of the daily readers, I think, Courage to Change. And the reading was more or less about acceptance. And we sort of went all the way around the table, and we still had 20 minutes left, and somebody said, well, let's let's do another one. So we picked up another one of the daily readers. I think this was one day at a time. And the reading was also about acceptance. Kind of like, yeah, I think, I think I'm supposed to hear this. <laughs> What's going on in my life right now that I'm not accepting? <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's the way it works, isn't it? You know, you talk about your higher power having a sense of humor, right? Um, my sister sent an email to me and my brother early this week. So she had gone with my parents. Uh, she lives in the same city with my parents. And so she had gone with them to an orchestra concert the night before and, and had noticed that our mother is moving even slower, uh, and found herself being very frustrated. Um, and I think scared also, and maybe also with a little bit of compassion. And, and so she sent an email and said, look, my brother's coming East for this summer. Uh, and we need to really get together and talk the parents into having a plan to move out of this house that they built, that they've been living in for the last at least 10 years, maybe longer. It's in a beautiful setting on a hill up above a lake, a half an hour from the nearest hospital down a dirt road that needs four-wheel drive to get up in the winter. And they're both getting more and more frail and, and they need to, we feel that they need to move into um, a place where they can transition as their needs change um, into, you know, assisted living or whatever. And to be in the city near the hospital with friends nearby instead of miles away. And, you know, they don't want to do that. (laughs) Um, And so, um, you know, she's starting this conversation about how are we going to have the conversation with them about this? We feel that, you know, it, 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 it really seems like it needs to happen. Um, and so more to come on that. Um, I'm, I'm going to be using my program like you wouldn't believe um, as, as we move into this, because um, was it last week? It was the shutting down episode. Mm. where, uh, you know, I said, uh, conflict avoidant. Oh yeah. Difficult conversations. Oh no, Mm. that is not me. So I'm going to have to ask my, my higher power for the, the courage to change the things I can. Um, and, uh, you know, the power to do his will. And maybe this is not his will. Maybe that's why I said, yeah, right. That's my excuse. Um, yeah. Uh, and there's some other things going on. I don't, I don't, I don't need to talk about, although, well, I'm mentoring a, a ninth grader in, um, this program we have at our church called coming of age, which is sort of equivalent to what in other church might be confirmation or bar mitzvah. It's this recognition of coming into adulthood examination of what it means, um, to be an adult. What, you know, what do we believe? What, what, why are we in church? You know, why are you in church? Um, talking about service, talking about death, talking about um, God, uh, and and uh, and so each of the each of the 
young people in the, in the, in the program is paired with an adult mentor who helps more, some, some more, some less to, to guide them and also to be, um, an adult in their life who is not their parent. Um, because this is a time when, uh, you know, as children move into adulthood, they, they often need an adult role figure, an adult that they can talk to, um, who's not their parent because that parent child relationship is so full of all kinds of stuff. Um, judgment, <laughs> uh, expectations. Uh, and if I can be a person who's sitting there without judgment, without expectations and, and relating to, um, this, this guy as a, as a person, as a, as a, as a peer rather than as a boss kind of whatever, you know, a parent, not a parent. So, um, it's something that I can do. It's something that I'm able to do very much, um, because of the experience I've had in, in, in the al program. And I mentioned this, and this also affects um, the upcoming podcast. Oh, oh, sorry. So we're recording this in the middle of the week instead of on the weekend, uh, which is my usual, I think partly because of your schedule, but also because I'm going to be busy this weekend because it's a big weekend in this coming-of-age program. We spend um, a day and a half uh, out on the land behind the church um, doing some service. The kids do a little a vision quest where they go and sit in quiet for some period of time. I don't know, an hour or a really long time when you're that age to sit still and be quiet. Um, uh, you could call it meditation. I don't know that it necessarily is. Um, the, the youth are encouraged to camp out. We have 40 acres behind our church, so they're encouraged to camp there. And then in the morning, there's a, a breakfast. Oh, at night there's, um, there's a ceremony. Um, and then in the morning, there's a there's a, a breakfast that's uh, catered by the by the parents, and and uh, so it's a, it's kind of an important transition weekend, and it fills up my weekend. I, I I won't have time on the weekend to record the podcast, which is one of the reasons that I jumped on your suggestion to do it because it's like ah, I can do this, and I don't have to like phone one in. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then the following weekend, I'm going um, over to the city I grew up in because one of my peers died recently and they're doing a memorial service for her on the 21st. I think it's the 21st Saturday. And so I'm going to be driving and going to memorial service and then driving and I won't have time to do a podcast. So that one I'm actually going to pull up. I forget exactly which episode it was uh, where I did, I did an episode on loss and I felt like, well, this is a good time to sort of pull that one and and uh, replay it as a as a best of. It fits with what I'm doing that weekend anyway. Upcoming topics uh, are going to include loss, as I, I just mentioned, and I'm still I'm looking for some co-hosts for an episode on one of the gifts of Al-Anon. These come from the book from Survival to Recovery, and there's there's a couple paragraphs of them, and this one that I want to talk about. Our sight, once clouded and confused, will clear and we will be able to perceive reality and recognize truth. Um, So if you're out there listening and you think you might have something to say about that, um, drop us an email or drop us a voicemail or uh, let me know if you'd actually like to talk at length about it because I'd love to talk to you. You can join our conversation. Please leave us a voicemail or send us an email. And Carrie, how can people do that? 
Yeah, you can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Call right now to 734-707-8795. You can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. If you prefer not to use your voice, you can send an email to feedback at com. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or questions about today's topic on Mother's Day or any of our upcoming topics. If you have a topic you'd like to talk about, let us know. And you can find all the information about the show at our website, which is therecoveryshow.com. We have notes for each episode, uh, a very occasional blog, uh, links to the music that we talk about, and also links to some other recovery podcasts and websites that we like. And you can be a guest host, as uh, Carrie is today, by phone or Skype or FaceTime or there's lots of electronic communication media. Email feedback at therecoveryshow.com if you're interested. We will take a short break again before we look in our mailbag. And the second musical selection available on the, which you can listen to on the website is Mama by Lunch Money Lewis. And this is another one that, that Carrie found for us. Thanks, Carrie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got some lyrics here. It's just, uh, it's a wonderful song about Mama and how he loves his mother. And, and uh, the chorus, or at least part of the chorus, is this song is dedicated to my mama who taught me how to put on my pajamas. Always let me have a couple dollar, but told me that my dreams had better follow. I love my mama. I love my mama. And uh, I think you said this was just the best. Yeah. Yeah, it's just happy and full of gratitude, which is nice, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nice contrast to the you know the one about judgment. <laughs> right, right. Not good enough. Like, yeah, yeah, balance it out. Yeah, yeah. Hey, we did get some voicemails and some emails this week. And Carrie, you want to read the first one from Jean? Sure. Uh, Jean commented on the shutting down episode on the website, uh, 152. She wrote, as a wife of 20 years to an alcoholic, I thank you. I see myself in many of the situations you discuss. I didn't understand why I have been shutting down and avoiding but it is becoming more clear. I have only been to one or two Al-Anon meetings over the years, but I plan on making this a priority. Thanks, Jean. And and Carrie, uh, I think that was actually your suggestion, that topic. It was, yeah. Um, yeah, and I it was really wonderful. Thank you guys so much, um, you and I think you had three co-hosts that day. And I did. <laughs> it was crowded in here. Yeah, which is so cool. It was really neat. I I left, actually I ended up leaving three voicemails <laughs> and you played that and then you guys did the rest of the show and it was really neat to to hear what you guys had to say about it, which was really my motivation. It's something that I've been struggling with um, and I really wanted to hear your all's really good insights and they really were. And, and it was also just a really neat experience to um, be listening to your podcast for all these months and yeah, to be a part of it, which is really, it feels like Al-Anon, you know, it's just welcome and welcoming and loving and 
supportive. Um, so I'm really grateful and I really would love to encourage, um, everyone to do it. And if you're scared of what your voice sounds like, don't worry. Cause I, my voice does not sound like this in real life. So don't let that stop you. <laughs> and I have to say that was a challenge when we started doing the podcast. And in fact, <laughs> um, I, my two co-hosts that I started with, uh, pretty much refused to listen to any of the episodes that they were in. <laughs> Um, and yeah. I said, you know, it's really like, it's like doing step four. It's like, mm. you know, searching and fearless. Well, maybe not quite fear, fearless, but, but mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. They, they just wouldn't. And I don't like the way my voice sounds in recording, but I'm getting used to it. <laughs> yeah. I understand it is what it is. And, and people have told me so much good and I'm like, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't hear mm-hmm. it, but thank you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, that's, that's, uh, Yeah. Yeah, thanks again for doing that episode. Oh, our pleasure. Uh, Kayla wrote to us about the intimacy episode, which is number 141. And and as somebody asked uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, if I've got an episode number, how do I find it? And it's really easy. You can type in com and then a slash and then the number, you know, like 141. And there you are, you're at 141. So we try to make that easy. Anyway, Kayla writes, Spencer, thank you for your sharing on intimacy. I'm struggling mightily in this area with my husband of 38 years, who for six years was addicted. He stopped using nearly two years ago, but is not in a 12-step program, choosing to work only a self-prescribed spiritual program. I've been in Al-Anon two and a half years, have a sponsor, and have worked the steps, now working on Tradition 8. Those years took a toll on me, and I can relate to your wall that you built up. That is the phrase I use with him, and that even though he initiated the behavior, I propagated it with my own codependent responses. My lack of desire is putting a strain on our marriage as he is finding it very difficult to be patient as I seek help to move back closer to him. We are in counseling with a couple who are both recovering addicts for over 30 years, and their practice is just with addicts and families. Progress seems so slow at times, and the intimacy, and she writes in parentheses, into me see which is, is an interesting rephrasing of it and, and true. Because when you're intimate with somebody, they see into you. Yeah. Anyway, the intimacy that we once enjoyed seems very far away. I'm praying about asking him to listen to your testimony to let him know I'm not the only one. We'll contact my counselor and see what she thinks. I find I still get caught up in working his program, so need her advice if having him listen is doing is my doing that. Thank you so much for your programs. I'm so glad the Lord led me to your podcast a month ago. You are my frequent partner as I take walks. I've also had opportunity to pass the website on to others. Blessings from Kayla. And and thank you, Kayla. I, I think I've said this before. That was a, a difficult one for me to do, but I felt it was important to, to share that, that pain um, and that difficulty because other people have shared their pain and their difficulties with me, and that has helped me to grow, and it has helped me to change. And um, if I can do that for for one person at a time, that's that's all I need. Uh, you want to read uh, email from Megan? Sure. Megan says, "Thank you." Hi, Spencer. I just wanted to thank you for the show. I started listening to the podcast about a month ago. I had been struggling with anxiety and was looking for something I could listen to while I was at work. And the podcast has become such a source of comfort for me. In this short amount of time, a lot has happened. 
I'm still working through my anxiety and the show has become very important to me, especially when my mind begins to race. Just hearing that intro music helps me to get out away from my thoughts, which can often be very toxic. Just listen to your most recent show on shutting down. And as with most of the topics, I could completely relate. I am an adult child and shutting down was one of my survival strategies that I needed to get through the chaos of living in an alcoholic home. Unfortunately, by the time I reached Al-Anon, this strategy also meant that I often shut down in relationships, especially when they would become quote-unquote serious. I didn't know and still don't know what good intimacy is, so I struggle with that. Thankfully, I am no longer running away from intimacy, but participating in it is tough. I am more aware now than ever how difficult I find it to be intimate with those around me. I was so used to putting on a mask and pretending to be what I thought others wanted me to be. This has honestly been a very tough process for me. As I listened to the show, you guys were laughing and everyone sounded cheerful. I had woken up feeling grumpy and just done with the world and so turned to the podcast as I have been doing. When you got to the part of the show about your lives in recovery, I was somewhat taken aback when a few of you mentioned you had had challenging week. I was like, what? Simply because I would never have thought that if you didn't mention it. And that helps me to remember that Everyone has their challenges, whether I can see it or not, and that there are healthy ways to deal with these things, like gratitude. Thanks for the reminder. I would also very much like to be a part of the show as a co-host at some point. Thank you for everything you do, Megan. Thanks, Megan. Um, And I had a couple of thoughts. One thing is, I don't think I had connected intimacy and shutting down or shutting down an intimacy. Mm. And so thank you for making that connection, especially since we just had two, two other emails about those two episodes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Thanks. Uh, I don't know. You have any, any uh, connections? Yeah. um, There's a lot of really good um, uh, points in there that I definitely, um, that definitely resonate with me. One of them, for sure, that is something that I definitely do is, I don't know if it's an Al-Anon slogan, but um, comparing my insides to someone else's outsides. Yeah. And that, I just do that so quickly and easily. And I have friends that I've um, had for years, and I and I think like, oh, their life has you know all these elements. And <laughs> one example that does come to mind really quickly is um, my friend posted her and her husband in this photo booth and they were so cute and you know they had these little props with them and I was like look at them they like travel for weddings and it's so nice and they're having fun and I, I'm so glad that I that I mentioned that to her and she was like oh my if you could have heard the conversation before that like he was so grumpy and I was like get in the booth you know like, <laughs> it was just so funny to me because it's just laughing at myself like they're, they're people you know and so um yeah I really do that and just also to me what that part of it too is just when you guys are 
you know, just really sharing yourselves where you are in those moments. It just helps so many of us listening. So yeah, thank you. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. And, and that is something that is true in the program that we can, we can still find time to, and, and the ability to, to laugh, even mm-hmm. if things aren't necessarily going perfectly, mm-hmm. which they usually aren't actually. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Amy wrote, um, hi Spencer, I've been listening to the recovery show for about a year and 12 step rooms for about five years. And I'm always appreciative of the content your show presents the quality of the topics and the guests. I can't say enough how much I appreciate that. I can get the message from Alan on even when I can't make it to a face to face meeting. I would love to learn more about how you create the show and possibly help out in the future. Please let me know how this might work. Thanks, Amy. Yeah, wow, I'm getting all these offers. I love it. <laughs> I actually had a meeting earlier this week with a um, a person locally who is mm. thinking about putting together a podcast that has some recovery connection. I'll be interested to see um, when she gets it going. Uh, and mm. I'll probably be talking to her some more. We talked about equipment and what does it take to actually make the podcast happen and how long does it take and all kinds of stuff. It was a great conversation. Got a voicemail from Akila. Hey, Spencer. This is Akila. I'm calling about the meditation episode. I wanted to thank you and Eric for talking about the topic. I think it's great. I'm not really a big meditator because I, it's just not something I do a lot of. Though when I do, I usually use an app. Uh, it's called Stop, Breathe, Think. And it works really well. And I mostly use it when I can't fall asleep. And I have used it when I was in severe pain, when I was having some issues with my thyroid one night, and my daughter just looked at me, and I was just miserable, and she said, have you tried meditating? So I used mm-hmm. that app, and I did the meditation, and it actually helped a lot, because what happened was I wasn't breathing, and breathing helped me to relax and settle down a little bit more. Um, I also, my daughter has anxiety as a medical condition. And she uses meditation as a tool along with her medication and her therapy and her journaling. So I think we just have to be really careful not to denigrate people who take medicine for medical conditions even related to anxiety or psychiatric issues because I think that happens a lot sometimes in Al-Anon. And it is, meditation is a wonderful tool, but for her it probably would not be able to replace the medication that she needs. I also use um, journaling as a form of meditation, which I don't think we really talked about. For me, it's really helpful. That's a good way for me to get out of my head because I usually have a lot going on in there. And I get things on paper, and I can actually start, when you were talking about that higher thinking, I can start to see where I need to be thinking more about, like, oh, I need to get into step three, or I need to this is about powerlessness, and I need to do serenity prayer, and I find that helpful. The other thing y'all didn't mention was exercise as a form of meditation. Um, that's actually where I started. I had a therapist who recommended that I do yoga because I need to get out of my head and into my body, and that was the only way I could turn my brain off. And it actually got really uncomfortable for me when I started to hit my bottom because apparently if you're not used to being in silence and you're not used to feeling things, if you're in a place that keeps you in touch with your body, you start to feel them. Um, but... I've also used more aerobic exercise besides yoga as meditation because, again, it helps me get out of my head, focus on the present, be where I need to be, and I find that really helpful. So for people who are maybe like, I don't know about this whole meditating thing, maybe try an exercise of some sort 
Um, and it's more effective, I think, than walking because walking helps me ruminate. But when I'm doing physical things that challenge mm-hmm. my body more, I can't think about anything except what my body is doing. All right. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, Akila. And, and I think, um, Carrie, I think you had talked a little bit about uh, yoga and you called in for, for the meditation episode or maybe after it. I don't remember now. Yeah, it might be both. I won't stop talking about that yoga. <laughs> um, if I can just say first, um, I've been uh, wanting to leave a voicemail or something. I just love Akila so much. The times that she's um, co-hosted with you and her um, contributions and all of those were such great points. Um, yeah, for sure. I, For me, I ran in high school and that was absolutely meditation for me. Um, that was... That was um, yeah, it's just the rhythm of my breath because I would, you know, take a step, step, and that would be a breath and then exhale, step, step. And yeah, it really, really helped me. And then, yeah, yoga taught me how to breathe. I was not, I, I was not breathing. Um, I mean, literally I would like, you know, kind of like gasp for air every once in a while, maybe not that loudly, but, um, and I kind of worded it similarly that, um, well, kind of what I thought, I think I heard her say is that, you know, yoga was the closest thing I could get to meditation. My hope is that it is something that I incorporate into my daily ritual or routine, just like I brush my teeth, just to do it a little bit in, at night and a little bit in the morning. I know that that would change my life. And, and I did, I think I had a misconception about it, that it was um, to clear my mind. And that that just sounded really uncomfortable. There are so many wonderful guided meditations out there. Um, and so that's kind of where I'm at with it, is the um, guided meditation. Yeah. Akila mentioned an app, and I didn't quite catch it, so I'm going to send her an email, and, and I'll get a link mm-hmm. to that into the show notes. Because um, I know there's there's a number of meditation apps. I think we like linked to at least one of them, maybe two, in the notes for the meditation episode, which was 151, I think. If you're interested in in apps, go look there. Um, Look in the notes for this episode, 154. And uh, Christy wrote in as a newcomer. I think that must have been the subject line of her email. I just finished listening to the podcast about boundaries. I think maybe 102 or 103. She says, this is a fabulous group and this topic really hit home. Only my second week of once per week meetings. I have had and struggle with control issues also. My boyfriend, whom I believe to be my soulmate, definitely has a drinking problem and has begged me through tears to help him quit. I finally realized I can't help, but I can support him, but I have to be careful not to enable. I'm still learning, but hearing that I don't have to move out next week as planned is such a relief. Hearing that it is possible and possibly more healthy for both of us for me to take care of myself and release my soul from the constant flames that occur daily and do nothing but lock us both in the same hell together. I especially enjoyed the talk about the partner coming to bed late, and I use earplugs too. My parents were alcoholics also. I know that now. I know I had used it to solve my problems at one point, but now my turning 40 and acid reflex helps me decide not to drink as often or as much, if at all. Only in my second week in the local Al-Anon family group, and I should have joined so much earlier in life, but so happy I found them now. So happy to have the podcast as filler between meetings, feeling very needy. Thank you for having a relationship discussion and for sharing your stories. I tearfully thank you from the bottom of my heart, Christy. 
Thank you. Thank you, Christy. Um, you know, that's why we're here. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to The Recovery Show, but we do have expenses, which run about $60 a month. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear in a couple of ways. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Eric, Kayla, and Ellen did. And thank you again, Eric, Kayla, and Ellen, for your contributions. We've put together a list of recovery-related books. Click on the books link at the top of the page, and if you order one of these books from Amazon through our website, we will receive a small commission. In fact, anything you order from Amazon after clicking on one of the links will help us. It costs you nothing extra and helps to keep us on the air. Thank you for your support in whatever form you give it. Whether it's sharing the podcast with your friends, just direct them to therecoveryshow.com or listening to us. We are here for you. And Carrie, what's the last song you picked? Yeah, our last song selection is uh, You Are My Sunshine, sung by Elizabeth Mitchell, which you can listen to at therecoveryshow.com slash 154. I chose this song. What appealed to me is the part of the song I know, which is basically just four lines, because um, I sing that to my children pretty much almost every night since they were just little. And we sing the portion, um, you are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. You'll never know, dear, how much I love you. Oh, please don't take. And then I insert their whatever name, the child, whichever child I'm singing it to, um, away. And then um, they usually kind of sing it along with me. And then they say, then don't, don't, you know, please don't take mama away. And then pretty much everyone in the house, including the dogs and cats and whatever fish are, you know, alive at that time. (laughs) Fish are like that. Yeah. Yeah. We've gone through some, thank goodness we don't have to say it to, you know, all the fish we've ever had. Um, And yeah, just, um, it takes a while, but it really helps them to settle from the day. And it's um, a nice memory that I have with them. Yeah. I want to thank you for sending a number of, of song suggestions. It made it, it really easy. And, and I liked, picked this one because it, it expresses being a mother. Mm-hmm. You know, we started with one about, you know, the judgmental mother and then the mother that is just wonderful and now being a mother. And it made a nice, um, little arc of, of story or something. I don't know. Yeah. I might not even yeah. leave that in the podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. (laughs) Thank you for listening and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you're facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.